Listen, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. Billy has gone to sleep a senile widower and awakened on his wedding day. He has walked through a door in 1955 and come out another one in 1941. He has gone back through that door to find himself in 1963. He has seen his birth and death many times, he says, and pays random visits to all of the events in between, he says. Billy is spastic in time, has no control over where he's going next, and the trips aren't necessarily fun. He is in a constant state of fright, he says, because he never knows what part of his life is going to have to act in next. Your shelf for mine Talking sophisticated topics all the time Your shelf for mine Kick back, relax, crack a book on wine at your shelf Welcome to your shelf. Or mine. Or mine. That's perfect. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to your shelf. Or mine. Or mine. I'm Becky Standle, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. I'm Austin Brigden, Circulation Specialist at the Longview Public Library. I'm Heather McBride, Circulation Technician at the Longview Public Library. Welcome, Heather. Thank you. We're so excited to have you on your first uh episode of Your Shelf Are Mine, where we'll be talking about your favorite author, Kurt Vonnegut. Yay. Yay. So we've been planning um, to do this one with you, Heather, for like a year. Yeah. I've been Are you ready? Anxiously. I mean, sure. Yes. <laughs> I've been ready my whole life. Well, since high school anyway. Awesome. So um, normally how we begin is we just do like go around and say what our... Um, experience with the author has been in our lives and what we recently read or reread or watched for the show. So I'll go first. I did not read Kurt Vonnegut in high school. I maybe read a short story in college, but it didn't, you know, make an impression, I guess, because I don't really remember if I did or not. It might have been like Thomas Pynchon. Maybe it was both of them. And then um, I always really liked that quote of his that's um, where he talks about his uncle like saying, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. And so like a year ago, I was like, I should read where that's actually from. And so I got a copy of Man Without a Country and I read that. And that was my first Kurt Vonnegut book. And then for this, I read Slaughterhouse-Five, and I watched the documentary um, Kurt Vonnegut on Second Time, for actually the second time, because I watched it last year when we got it for the library. I did I did read him in high school. Um, I chose to, though. It was mm -hmm. a class I chose to take, and I picked him out of a bunch of other uh, American literature authors. Um, and I chose to read uh, Slaughterhouse-Five first, and loved it. Favorite book. Um, I recommend it to everyone. Um, and if they can't stand to read books, I recommend a graphic novel. And I also read Welcome to the Monkey House. And it has like my favorite short story in it. Recently, I reread uh, some short stories and I listened to some of his 
species at different colleges, and I actually just did a little research on um, some different connections. Yes, other things that I love. Do you watch the speeches just like on YouTube? Yeah, yeah. Cool. And I also read Man Without a Country, which I absolutely loved too. Um, I didn't have a whole lot of background with Vonnegut. I feel like I read, I watched speeches of his and interviews and stuff on YouTube some years ago. And then I read the letters, which is a weird way to start, but I do that sometimes. Um, for this, well, I had watched the Unstuck in Time documentary too. Um, so I rewatched it. Um, and I read Player Piano, which was his first novel published in 1959. And uh, I chose it very carefully because it was what was available on Libby. <laughs> I, I thought it was striking that it's still like, you have to wait in line quite a bit to get a Kurt, uh, you know, if you want Slaughterhouse-Five on Libby forget about it um so i read that one but it turned out really good and i thought it might be di something different that other people didn't read and then i read um part of man without a country and part of an earlier nonfiction collection called fates worse than death which is about the 80s yeah i think that's everything i read let's start with um let's talk about the documentary because that's really fresh in my mind and um so it's called Kurt Vonnegut, colon, Unstuck in Time, right? And it's by Bob Whitey. And also, I think he had somebody help him um, direct the parts that he's in. So it's him and somebody else. And it's both a documentary about Kurt Vonnegut that he's been making for, had been making for like 40 years. And also at the same time about the process of making that documentary and about his friendship um, with Kurt Vonnegut that started because he was working on it. He started the documentary and he said in the beginning, he says he started or he first had reached out to him when he was like 22 or 23. And when he was recording finally to wrap up the documentary, he was 60. So he was as old as, was when they first met yeah and i feel like to me that's like the most touching part of the whole documentary i think i don't know i mean the documentary is really well done um and interesting i don't know the parts that really got me i think where he spent all this time with vonnegut going back to like vonnegut's home mm -hmm. in indianapolis and different places and there and and the kind of portrait of vonnegut getting older and losing his family was really got me there's like a scene where he's there i think at the indianapolis house that his dad who's an architect designed and they all have their like handprints him and his siblings and the parents all have their handprints and he's kind of standing there you know tracing his hand through like his sister's handprint it's just like oh and then they read that path they're like animated sequences too and i can't remember what book it's from it was uh, from is it from timequake timequake no. I think that's right. Where he sees Kilgore Trout speaking in the voice of his father, saying, make me young, make me young. And I, oh, yeah. I, it's been a while since I've seen Unstuck in Time, I'm going to be honest. But the feeling I remember the most from it was, it made me sad. But mostly because Kurt Vonnegut was one of those people that for the longest time in my life, I was like, I want to meet this human. Mm -hmm. I want to meet him. And so I, I never got that opportunity. So, but to be able to experience 
this friendship and this relationship that occurred between the mm-hmm. filmmaker and Kurt Vonnegut was very, um, very touching. And There's this part where he talks about when he's got married, Kurt got him these candlesticks that he gotten for all of his children when they yeah. got married. And he's he had three of his own kids and then four nephews that he and his first wife raised. Yeah, that was interesting. So seven seven yeah. kids. Yeah. His wife his sister got cancer and then her husband died in this accident. Like right. And then she died like just And then she died two days later. <laughs> yeah. And he took the four sons. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like when I first watched the documentary I hadn't read Slaughterhouse Five yet and then I read it and then rewatched the documentary and there was things in it that I understood better from reading the book and then there's parts of the book where I'm like oh I can see how that's maybe from his life too because like in this book there's this part where um, Billy Pilgrim is in like a plane crash and so he's in the hospital and his wife is like rushing to see him in the hospital and gets in a car accident and then drives her broken car there and ends up getting like dies from carbon monoxide poisoning and that kind of reminds me of the story of like his sister and her husband how one was really sick and then the other she was supposed to die first and he was Mm. supposed to take care of their kids and then he got in this terrible accident and she like died the next day Mm -hmm. billy pilgrim doesn't die the next day spoilers well, I mean, he's on second time, so he's <laughs> around every day. Or, well, or Don. Yeah. yeah. I really, really recommend the documentary. We have a copy of it at the library. I think it is also on Hulu, mm-hmm. if you have that. I think if you're a fan of Kurt Vonnegut, you'll really like it. And I think even if you don't know anything about him, there's you'll like, you'll it. like it. Yeah, there's lots of entry points. It'll make you there. want to read the books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you guys have both read, I haven't read Slaughterhouse-Five, you guys have both read it, and mm-hmm. that's probably the most yeah. famous book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you think? What are, you, what are your feelings about it? Um, Heather, will you just uh, tell us what it's about first? So the first words is Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time, and it follows this um, character throughout different parts of his life, but he meets the Tremalfadors mm-hmm. who tell they experience time in a um, all at once and in, in, in different sequences so it goes through his life where he he's at the Grand Canyon he is I believe an old man and then also up at their zoo where he's a mm-hmm. human display and then during World War II mm-hmm. where he is um, at a slaughterhouse a prisoner of war in a slaughterhouse in Dresden and that's really what Kurt Vonnegut wanted to write about right was mm-hmm. the bombing of dress in this beautiful artful city that he just demolished to pieces because he's been abducted by the tra- say it again a i might not be saying no that, that right. seems I'm right gonna... to me because he's been abducted by them he becomes unstuck in time yes. and so he time travels basically from these all these different moments and so the book is non-linear sometimes he's old and sometimes he's middle-aged, and sometimes he's young, sometimes he's a kid. It's funny how the autobiographical stuff comes in, because in the documentary they're talking to him about, like, I don't know, somewhere the family had that was, like, on a lake, and they're out on the docks, and mm-hmm. he's, like, a little boy, and his cousin is kind of being a know-it-all about stars, and being like, this one's this, this one's that, and he turns around and points and says, that one's Tremalfador. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like, 
it becomes a part decades of decades and decades later yeah. he remembers that and makes that the name it's funny how little autobiographical things become. but if i so i like i said i've only read the one novel and i read a little bit of um focus pocus mm. but not very much um it was enough that reading both of them or trying to was like getting me confused so i stopped reading that one um like is this happening in this book or is this mm -hmm. happening in this book um, because he writes in this like universe that he's made so there's like characters that recur in different books i believe the trauma the aliens <laughs> are from a different book originally like they don't they're from something before slaughterhouse five that he wrote is that oh, right really i am not 100 percent sure because i'm still I've, i haven't read all of them what was I know Kilgore Trout is in a bunch of the books. He is in all of them, and he is, like, the main star in Bre Breakfast of Champions. Okay. That's an another one that I like to read. Oh, here's a list. Um, Sirens of Titan? Or the Trophamogadorians in that one? I learned something interesting about the Sirens of Titan. Okay. Um, Jerry Garcia, super into um, mm -hmm. Kurt Vonnegut. And he bought the rights to it, and they worked oh. really hard. They built a script, and it's it's apparently I haven't again I haven't read it, but it's apparently a really difficult to adapt a screen, so it never mm. actually came to fruition. But now um, Dan Harmon is looking to make it into a TV series. Oh, what does he do? Uh, he did uh, Community and Monster House, the movie, and um, Rick and Morty. Oh. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's it's and that was a couple years ago, so hopefully something will come up. And also their uh, production company is named Ice Nine Publishing, which is a structure of water <laughs> that becomes a solid state at room temperature, which is in Cat's Cradle. Right. And that's, you know, how I'm assuming the world I shouldn't make any assumptions, but I'm assuming that's how they end the world in that particular novel because a lot of his books seem to be go concerned in that direction. with the apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Trophamador Trophamador is first shows up in Sirens of Titan. That'll be interesting to see if they adapt that. It's or see how that comes out. It seems like since TV has opened up a lot, um, things that were difficult to do as like a feature film, people are starting to make try to tackle a series. So that's exciting. I'd love to see it. They haven't. I mean, there isn't really any current for Gone. Uh -oh. Kurt Vonnegut books or at all like yeah movies have you seen like did you see the Slaughterhouse-Five movie the 1972 and then Bob Whitey they show scenes from it made a movie of Mother Night yeah I think with that's what's his name oh I can't remember Ethan Hawke I don't think it's Ethan Hawke you looks, think it's Ethan Hawke I don't know it kind of looked like him oh, in that clip that they showed I think it's it's older than that. I William. Think. Older than Ethan Hawke? I think so. No. We'll find out in a minute. <laughs> I don't think player piano is connected. I don't know if it's connected to anything else. I don't think it is. That was the one I read. And it was. It's Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nick yeah. Nolte. 1996. Yeah. I'd like to see that movie. Yeah. Maybe the library will get it. Um, <laughs> Player Piano was good It was his first novel I don't think it's connected to the multiverse of Kurt Vonnegut But it's um, the novel that he was writing While he worked at GE 
the That's job right. that his brother, the astrophysicist, got him. And it was like big company town, Schenectady, New York. Um, and that's where the book is set, it's in, in New York. And it's about this guy, Dr. Paul Proteus. And he's the son of another guy named Paul Proteus, who was like, the whole conceit is that it's after World War II. And in, in the course of winning the war, the engineers kind of took over and automated everything. And they won the war with like, you know, these advanced mm -hmm. machines. And now everybody gets like IQ scored and has all these, like they have like mechanized ways for measuring everything. So you have like a personnel card and that determines like what kind of job you can have if you can have a job. It's like the people at the top IQs have jobs and then most people are either in the army or in they're in the oh, reconstruction and reclamation corps, the reeks and wrecks, which is which will be like fixing potholes and stuff. And uh, trials are determined by a machine, decides the punishment, all this kind of stuff. And Paul Proteus is an engineer at the Ilium Works that makes all kinds of stuff. It makes however many different things, like little like parts of things the machine tells it the economy will absorb. Ilium is a fictional town that reappears in the novel. Oh, does it? Yeah, that's where Billy Pilgrim lives. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's he's the head of the Ilium Works, and he starts to get kind of disenchanted with the company. His dad was the one who led it during the war when they took over everything, um, and his wife is like from, you know, so they're they're on the Iroquois River. And Ilium is on one side, and all the engineers and stuff live there, and managers. And then the regular people live in Homestead, which is across the river. And his wife is from Homestead. But because she married him, she gets to be in this sort of, like, privileged class. And she's very, like, pushing him to try to, like, rise in the organization. And he's getting disenchanted with, like, what they've done to people. Um, and a friend of his reappears, who had a big job and quit, and is kind of off the rails and they end up i don't know it's kind of crazy he ends up like quitting but also the the company decides to fire him to to make it look like they've fired him so he can infiltrate this rebellion that's starting these people who want to go back to before the machines took over but he actually wants to quit and so he's like oh they don't know they think i'm a double agent for them but i'm just gonna quit yeah. um, and there's a rebellion and but the people destroy all the machines like everything they're like destroying like you know every little machine they're like hide your watch or they'll destroy it so it kind of swings wildly mm -hmm. from one extreme to another but it was really interesting to read i i felt like published in 1959 but like with ai and social media and things that weren't weren't really you know on the scene when he wrote mm -hmm. it it's it's you know still resonates so I liked it. Yeah, it's interesting how you come from this family with like a lot of people who are really like good in their fields. Like the documentary kind of touches on that about how like the name of Vonnegut is all over Indianapolis because they built buildings and did all this stuff. But his brother was like really, really famous. And you know how they could seed clouds and stuff to make it rain? He invented that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was just pretty impressed. <laughs> Did you ever read Player Piano? No, no, I haven't read Player Piano either. Um, when you were talking about his family, I'm like, oh, it was his mother and her untimely demise and how their family kind of went mm -hmm. during the Depression and stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. 
Nope. No player piano. Um, I did read Timequake when it came out. Um, it was actually the last book that my mother ever bought me on our bookstore adventures Aww. that we used to, we started when I was like six. And so yeah, I grew into Kurt Vonnegut and it's, it's also all over the place, but Timequake kind of makes it seem like it's going to be like that. And I honestly, it's been years since I read it, so I don't really remember a lot. But the most recent one that I read was, it was a short story, Harrison Bergeron. And it is my favorite, and it's where everybody is completely equal. And so people are given physical handicaps and um, loud buzzing in their ears so they can't think very hard. <laughs> and um, Harrison Bergeron is um, seven foot tall, beautiful, perfect human being, 14 years old. And his parents are watching TV and they're watching these ballerinas and they are, you know, heavily handicapped. They have to wear masks because they're beautiful. Mm. And then the ballerina comes up and says that Harrison Bergeron has been, he is, he is not handicapped enough and he is, he is out and considered dangerous. And then he busts through the door and says, I am the emperor. I'm better than everyone. And he, um, she chooses the prettiest ballerina and takes off all of her handicaps and they do this beautiful dance of gracefulness and and it is just beautiful and then the person who um is in charge of handicapped people comes out with a shotgun and takes them both out and everybody forgets about it because they've all been handicapped not to think but his mm. parents are sitting there and his mom is crying and she's like i don't know what happened but it must have just been really sad Oh. And then her dad's like, and then his dad's like, you could say that again. And then she said it again. And that's the end. And it mm. was just the idea of, you know, like everybody being equal isn't necessarily the best idea in that regard. Um, and it's always just been my favorite. But I don't know if I could really say why now that I just, mm -hmm. I didn't recall it ending that way until I read it today. And I was like, oh, we didn't, we didn't make it out. Because, like, <laughs> you know. Read it for high school and then again. And, uh -huh. But, you know, being a kid, the idea of a kid breaking free and mm -hmm. trying to save the world feels like... And know. then, yeah. The idea of, like, equality meaning that everybody's... Handicapped. Yeah. It's just really stuck out for me all these years. Mm -hmm. Then there's also a few others, but Welcome to the Monkey House is my favorite. It has Tomorrow, 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 which is about... Um, no one dies anymore, but they age. And so families are stuck living in like apartments and, you know, small apartments, like all family, uh, just like one family, you know, will be living in the kitchen mm -hmm. and others in the living room, some in the hallways, and it's just crowded. And then of course there's the patriarch of the family and they're all just kind of miserable. Um, and then, then in the end, they announce that they've come up with an elixir to um, make you young again. And so he takes all of the family money and he's going to go be young again. And then that's how that ends. They're all very short, short stories. Yeah. And just kind of a bit of a commentary on, you know, what life could be like if it was what we wanted, but in a weird way. What about Man Without a Country? You, Heather, you've also described this book as your favorite. <laughs> I have. Okay. So You're like, this one's my favorite. Also, this one's my favorite. This one's my favorite. <laughs> and it's, I'm honestly, it's, it's been a while since I read it. I like the little um, art. I can't remember what they call them in it. Like, There's a thing in the end where he says, this is what it's called. Like, and they're just, they're just fun. I love 
the sections we decided to call them, but these are his, um, in Slaughterhouse-Five, he does the picture, and he's like, you can't, it's an asterisk is what it is, and he's <laughs> like, this is a butthole, and so. Yeah, actually, I think that's in, uh. Is it not in Slaughterhouse-Five? No, it's in, um. Breakfast of Champions? Yes. I don't know. Breakfast of Champions has a lot of... I think it's in Breakfast of Champions. Drawings. Like, lots of drawings. Yeah, there's not very many drawings in, in Slaughterhouse-Five. It's just the... I think... Yeah, here... Yeah, it's in yeah. Breakfast of Champions. Is it? Yeah. I was like, I wish I, I could have brought mine, Slaughterhouse-Five, but it is uh, broken and dilapidated because <laughs> I loaned it out so many times. And Maybe there's no pictures in Slaughterhouse-Five. There is in the other version. I promise. Oh, well, not in my paperback version that I have here. I loved in the document, not to go keep going back to the documentary, but it reminds me because that handwriting of his in the books mm-hmm. and, and at the end, uh, Bob Whitey shows like <laughs> uh, one of Kurt Vonnegut's favorite things was to, like send him these faxes where he mm-hmm. would just write like a joke in that handwriting and then fax it to him. Really liked the faxing. Mm-hmm. There's so much stuff there too, where he's talking like as a kid to get like a letter back, um, you know, because he's like just out of college basically when he's like, you know, let me make this movie of you, and just living his little nerdy yeah. dream. Like he talked about when he was in high school, that his teacher gave them. Maybe it was Breakfast of Champions. Breakfast of Champions, and then they talk to the teacher, and the teacher is like, uh. I don't know if I should have given it to him. It's kind of (laughs) edgy. Like, she's, like, embarrassed, but But he loved it. He loved it so much that he asked the school if he could teach a class just on Vonnegut, and they let him do it. Basically, like, a Vonnegut book club. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that that was cool. Yeah. What a precocious kid. Yeah. As the documentary goes on, like, you realize, like, oh, I've seen stuff that this guy, he made. um, Well, he made Curb Your Enthusiasm. Curb Your Enthusiasm, yeah. Was his big... And then before that, it seems like his main thing was making, like, American Masters-style uh, documentaries about comedians for PBS, like mm-hmm. the Marx Brothers and Lenny Bruce and uh, and stuff. And, and Vonnegut talks about, like, laughing at dark things in that documentary. Yeah. Like, watching, he talks about watching Laurel and Hardy during the Depression. And then, like, there's this crazy scene, and the kid, I love the kids in it, too, because they talk to his kids and the nephews, and they're very, like... Um, frank about him but like he goes back to his high school and it's got like a placard of all the kids who died in world war ii and he starts laughing you know he starts like he's like that guy he's like slipped in the bathtub and hit his head and died at basic training and then he just starts laughing and and the kids are like talking about their like he laugh at like the craziest things as a way to deal with like the intense like trauma of his life trauma of his life Yeah. yeah Well, and, like, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. I was saying the um, speech that I was listening to earlier, he was talking about suing the Pall Mall cigarettes because right. they threatened to kill him forever. And here he is, like, you know, 80 years old and still alive and well mm-hmm. and kicking and, and smoking. And smoking. And yeah, yeah. And he, they, yeah, so he, um, so he was really good at making those dark humor jokes. And he, which is part of why people like him so yeah. much is that ability to be, and he's so irreverent about stuff. When I read, oh, in the author's note of Man Without a Country, he calls those little hand-lettered things. He says, samplers suitable for framing, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he he wrote 
a lot of these essays during like the George W. Bush administration and a lot of like commentary on that. And I remember reading it last year being like, oh, like this is like from when I was in high school. <laughs> but it is real quick read. Um, oh, yeah. Like, an, I, I think I sat there in an afternoon and mm-hmm. mostly got through it. He does a lot of like little headstone drawings with different epitaphs on them in Hocus Pocus. That's kind of like how it starts and how they like recur throughout the book. That's an interesting because it's like this book is like basically found scraps written by this guy and put together by Kurt Vonnegut is often like the author of the book. Right. Like in Slaughterhouse Five, he's like the Mm. he's the author of the book and he's like inserts himself in it a few times like in the beginning and a couple of times there's this part that I thought was funny and also gross where he's talking about when they were in this prisoner of war camp and they had some feast and now everybody got like food poisoning or or they're all sick maybe because they weren't used to eating very much and they were in the latrines and it says that this one man was saying like I don't know that he like pooped his brain like it was all gone in Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, and he's like, "That was me. I, the author of this book." <laughs> yeah, I definitely remember that. That was. Uh-huh. There's another time where he says, "And that was I, the author of this book." Um, but in Hocus Pocus, yeah, there's these scraps that have been collected, and the main character is in this jail that had used to be a school, and it's in some like futuristic world where actually it's now the past it's like 2020 maybe when it takes place um but the united states has fallen and it's like broken up into these little sections and i think japan has like colonized it i don't but i was thinking it reminded me of that because in man without a country he has a drawing of a tombstone like he does frequently in hocus pocus but the epitaph on this tombstone epitaph is that the correct word yeah is says life is no way to treat an animal. <laughs> he has in Slaughterhouse Five, not your version, but okay. in the version I have, I should have brought it. The quote, "Everything is beautiful and nothing hurts," mm-hmm. on yeah. the tombstone oh. as well, or it's on her necklace. I can't remember. Or he says it should be on a tombstone. Does he say it's on a tombstone? Oh no, there's a couple drawings because there's this one that- of the breasts yes so that's so on the tombstone it says everything was beautiful and nothing hurt yeah this one is the necklace that says the serenity prayer on it Mm. (laughs) so do you think in your reading of this book of slaughterhouse five do you think that he really is unstuck in time in that he actually like time travels or do you think that's just like his trauma i mean i really want him to be unstuck in time (laughs) but it feels like it would be more like it's just his trauma it's his you know dealing with that he's yeah I mean I'm going with he's unstuck in time he met the aliens and he is experiencing it all at once but the trauma makes more sense if you know we're going with just reality and what's probably really happening to him I like that there's different ways that you can read it he talks somewhere about that part of what he, how he likes to, to do the novels is to get people to accept the impossible premise, you know, which I think kind of knocks them off kilter too, so that you see things 
in a way that maybe it knocks you out of the accustomed ways of seeing things. I really appreciated his ideas in Galapagos. Oh. Um, it, it talks about how everybody has a cross. Okay. Yeah. You know, and mm-hmm. and they meet each other, and then they're just part of that clan, and then everybody has like the bigger version and all of that. And I just I like that idea mm-hmm. of you know that like in yeah. life maybe that's that's you know some of those speeches too. He talks about that extended family thing mm-hmm. where he's like, get yourself an extended family, even if you don't have one. You know, not like him. He talks about starting out with this extended family that was huge. Mm-hmm. And he says, quantity counts more than quality. Yeah, he says, they don't have to be good people. <laughs> high, not high caliber people. Yeah. Just a lot of people in your life. I mean, that, you know, it's, it's sound advice, I guess, in a way. Yeah, very, like, um, I'm going to say, like, preoccupied with, like, loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, the period, that they talk about the period, too, where he was writing the short stories. And I'm not sure if the monkey hat when he put together the monkey house book if it was out of the magazine work he did but he was for years like after he left he wrote player piano and he thought it was going to be like the masterpiece that was going to put him on the map and no it it wasn't really like or it was good but people didn't really read it and he had made like 2500 bucks on it and it took him like a number of years and he's like oh i better start writing short stories for the magazines and he like gets rich like it's actually for that brief little period before mm-hmm. like television really takes off he's like raking it in um, doing these stories, short yeah. stories I thought was interesting and they they have him like when he had that his brother gets him that well-meaning his brother well-meaning brother gets him that PR job at General Electric which I think you can kind of feel his response to that in a lot of his work like imagine kurt vonnegut like being like the company pr guy mm-hmm. and you really see it in player piano because it's like about a company town and there's like a scene of this company retreat where all the men go you know like to this summer camp where they sort of like you know worship the co- corporate <laughs> ideal and you can totally see it's coming out of having done that job mm-hmm. um and that sort of desire to like poke at the official narrative and what you're supposed to think what you're not supposed to say and he he said he quit GE to publish player piano because he thought that he could keep his job and also publish this novel and he really couldn't like having just read that novel he really couldn't because it's like sat in the same place and it's very critical yeah it's a very satirical about a company then he sold that first magazine story and he sent this letter to his dad that was like i'm never gonna have a real job again and his dad like what do they call that like lacquered it lacquered it onto a poster board you know thing and put it up and but then he did have to have other jobs he like sold a, sobs he had a, a sob dealership he owned it <laughs> sounds like he wasn't very good at that um yeah oh, yeah sobs are weird oh and then he had to teach at iowa he had to go and teach at Iowa. Although, I don't know, it's kind of funny to me, like, now to think, like, oh, I'm, like, a down-and-out writer. I'm not having very much success, so I'll go teach the Iowa Writer Workshop. But that's totally, like, a thing <laughs> where, and especially in the writing community at that but time, where it's, like... I think of that like, as such, like, a prestigious... Oh, so-and-so, we'll get them, we'll get them a chair somewhere, yeah. a professorship, so they can, like, buy groceries, you know? Like, that was kind of a thing. 
I think the Iowa was prestigious back then too, but yeah. he just didn't really want to do it. But then he liked it a lot. Well, and that's where he wrote his book. Is that where he wrote Slaughterhouse Five? I was think it so. Iowa? This is the book that everybody told him not to write. There's this book that uh, apparently Austin bought me a copy of, but I don't remember. What was it called? Uh, I don't remember, but it's about the writing of Slaughterhouse Five. And all of the drafts that looking, he did. He did lots of drafts and like how it evolved. Oh gosh. We started um, with like all of these different characters. It's called The Writer's Crusade, Kurt Vonnegut, and The Many Lives of Slaughterhouse Five. That seems interesting. Yeah. And then Slaughterhouse Five comes out, and he gets success. They republish like all of the previous stuff that was out of print, and then he leaves his family. Yeah. And runs off with the photographer Jill Kremens, and uh, I thought moves that moves to New York City. He like mentions that, and then he talks to his nephews, and I think they're the most. And I don't know at what point he talked to them, because like he talks to one of the daughters, and you can tell. There's, like, one point where it's, like, the footage is older and one where it's, like, more recent because of she looks different. Um, but I don't know when, like, at what... He had one interview with the nephews. Yeah. When, what year that interview took place. Mm-hmm. But, like, obviously, they were really... It was after he died some at some time. Mm-hmm. Really hurt by that. And it sounds like maybe more hurt than his wife, who he left, might have been. But then she died in the 80s, so he didn't get to talk to her about it, I guess. No. I think they put out a book. So there's a book of his letters, Vonnegut's letters. And then I think there's a book of just his letters with Jane. And right. she was, like, a real mm-hmm. big champion for him. like, mm-hmm. and, and a writer herself. A writer herself and a big, like, he would. they said he would have quit. She, like, kind of, like, encouraged him all the time and was very fierce with people. Like, and they show these letters, you know, that she would write. He's like, you must see my husband's work. He's a genius, you know, relentless in promoting him. And, and then as soon as he got really successful, really, he left. Yeah. There. Yeah. Yeah. And the documentary really kind of just skates past that. And it doesn't talk about his his marriage to his second Well, wife. it's kind of a betrayal in the documentary. Mm-hmm. But, like, I don't think they kind of, hurt, you know, don't understand, you know. I mean, people are multifaceted. You can't yeah. know. Kurt Vonnegut didn't really talk about it. Yeah. Um, I think it would have been interesting if he had. Yeah, but he, but yeah. He so, so it's kind of a mystery. Yeah. Um, what happened there. But. And, yeah. And then he moved to New York. And then he lived in New York. Longer than he lived anywhere else. Yeah. Until he died. Until he died. I don't know. Maybe it was just like a shift into stardom. You know, like he was a star. Yeah. Although people were kind enough to not recognize him on the streets. <laughs> which is something that he... Yeah. <laughs> Even though he was a star. And I talked about sort of the accidental way that Man Without a Country was written, where, like, he had been done, you know? And you hear older writers sometimes say this. Like, I remember Don DeLillo, the novelist Don DeLillo, talking about how he's, like, in his late... He might be in his early 80s now. He's, like, really relieved whenever he finishes a book. He doesn't want to leave any, like, half-baked book. Mm-hmm. So he's like, oh, I'm so relieved. And then he gets an idea, and it starts all over again. And he just hopes he dies before he gets the next idea and they talk about Vonnegut you know it started right he's so mad that he started writing these things to the little tiny magazine but was like really nervous he's like oh this is going to be the last book I write and nobody's going to like it and they're going to be like oh this what is this you know mm-hmm. and it turned out it reinvigorated like people knowing about him a new mm-hmm. generation kind of like took up Vonnegut after that book came out I thought that was really cool 
Ann Patchett talks about that when she's writing a novel. Like, she can't, um, she becomes, like, paranoid that she's going to die before it's finished. And she, and she wrote, the, <laughs> like, that book of essays during the pandemic. That was her pandemic book. And she talks about it in there, about how she certainly couldn't have started a novel during the pandemic. So she just wrote these, like, essays instead. Because <laughs> she might have died in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. And then what would have happened to her characters? Yeah, people who write novels are weird, huh? <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you guys want to read or looking forward to reading? I feel like I'm going to read some Vonnegut books after this. Um, I think the other one I would like to read is Breakfast of Champions. Mm. I was talking to Heather the other day. because We were going to record this a couple of days ago, but then we were too tired from moving all the books in the library. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. And so... But Heather, you were saying that you were watching these like videos of his speeches and it was making you sad because you there wasn't enough, nothing new that you hadn't listened to. Yeah, I kept hearing like the same, you know, clips, same jokes that I've always, you know, heard. And it just it just made me realize that we'll never get anything new from him ever again, which, of course, later on, I mentioned that to my partner and he's like, well, that's what makes it so valuable. And I'm just like, stop it. Stop being profound. Just but let me be sad. Do you feel like you are keeping some books? Like, I wonder that sometimes. Like, if you finish all of the books, then, then you'll just be done. And then there's no more of his books to read that you've never read before. I think, yes. I mean, I, I'm definitely pacing myself mm-hmm. in a way. Um, but I also, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I'll, I forget. I mean, mm-hmm. I, but it still won't be new. Even mm-hmm. if I reread, like, Time Quake, like, every time. I read Slaughterhouse-Five, like, it's always the same story. Beautiful, wonderful story, but still nothing changes. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think, yeah, in a way, I I must be pacing myself because I have stacks of books that Mm -hmm. I haven't read yet that I've I've had forever. And um, because I just read them, yeah, that that makes total sense. I never actually even thought about it that way, to be honest. And Slaughterhouse-Five, they talk about how, like, for the... For him, for Billy Pilgrim, the way that he can see time now or experiences time is like, it makes it so like, like say, like somebody dies and it's not as sad to him because he knows that they're still existing in all of these other mm-hmm. moments at the same time. Mm-hmm. It is kind of like that when you've got someone's books, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I still have things to look forward to and yeah. But I mean, I guess I should probably get them finished before I die. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. Well, and I always think it's a kind of magic. I mean, and and Vonnegut's not even the oldest writer I think of. I mean, there's writers much older who cut through to people today. But, you know, reading Player Piano and having feelings about today, you know, when it was written in 1959, or even like going on Libby and seeing how much people are reading the work. Uh-huh. Um, after he's gone, uh, it's kind of a magical thing that somebody's able to cut through time like that. Um, I think even reading like Man Without a Country, where some of these like little essays are so political and of the time that they were written, yeah, it makes even those I think you can read and see relevancy now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was this interview where he was talking about. It seems like after Slaughterhouse Five, when his other like books were coming out they'd get everyone like people were you know looking for kind of a gotcha like oh you're not so great 
And he talked about, oh, maybe I was just a man of the 60s and I'm not a man of the 70s. Oh, yeah, they're really ready to take him down. Yeah. yeah. How dare they? That's all I can think. Like, <laughs> impossible. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think somebody should read first? If, if somebody, a library patron's listening to this podcast and they're like, oh, I'm going to read Vonnegut, what's a good entry point? Is it the short stories? Is it Slaughterhouse-Five, the most famous thing? Is it Man Without a Country because it's very accessible? I think Slaughterhouse-Five is really accessible, too. Yeah. I think that's a He's good... He's pretty accessible. It's I've a good around, entry point. But... I was saying when I started this, I always would get it confused in my mind with another book I'd never read. Um, the book about a slaughterhouse? You know, the book about the slaughterhouse. Oh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle? Yes. Yeah, that's a different book. <laughs> yeah, totally different book, um, but I'd also never read it. But I knew that that book was about the slaughterhouse. Slaughterhouses? Yeah. And then this one is called Slaughterhouse. So they were get confused in my mind, even though I don't think they have a lot in common. Um, anyways. That make, makes me think about the accessibility thing, because I think he is really accessible. Yeah. And he's doing really complicated stuff, but in a way that's really accessible. Like in the documentary, they talked to John Irving, who I think was one of his students. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how people would kind of try to put him down. He was really popular among teenagers. And they mm-hmm. would try to put him down as like an easy writer mm-hmm. or a cheap writer. And he was talking about how hard it is to write like that. Yeah. How hard it is to write in like a, to do these incredible things in this, you know, very direct, companionable style. It's very difficult to do. And I think the way that like Slaughterhouse-Five jumps around in time could make it confusing, mm-hmm. but it's not. like. Well, that's the thing. So much of only a really, really good writer could have pulled off. Like you can imagine a lot of his premises and stuff being done, you know, failing yeah. with, a, with, a, with a writer who, who wasn't able to handle the material or make you like buy into it in the same way can you guys think of other authors i was thinking some not everything so i really like the author mt anderson who writes like lots of different kinds of things he writes for kids and he's written nonfiction, and he's write science fiction and stuff um and he wrote landscape with invisible hand which is a book that i love it's very short that's a very good book being adapted now yeah now it's a movie uh, I got an ad on my Instagram, but it reminds me, I think of like, um, that style, that, that style, very accessible. a very accessible, like a little bit like absurd, but at the same time, really like deep, believable. yeah. And deep political commentary. I think of, um, if I'm thinking of sort of like if people like Vonnegut things, I think George Saunders is a writer who, who does a similar kind of a thing. It, not exactly, but like. The kind of accessibility paired with these these premises that knock you a little bit off kilter. I don't. Have you got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. I don't. I, Kurt Vonnegut is the only author. I mean, other than this, it's usually just like easy reads and like good times or nonfiction. So mm-hmm. he stands alone. Yeah, he really he really does. I don't. That's interesting. He's actually. I don't. I also don't read a lot of male authors either mm. I've been trying to branch out like <laughs> but well I mean male authors are very underrepresented so it's good that you're trying to branch out yeah I'm, I'm trying um, <laughs> I just yeah they're but yeah, uh, yeah I'm usually all about the 
easy reads and the or the hard tough nonfiction. There's something about an author that you connect with when you're young, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still have profound experiences with books, but I feel like when you're, I don't know, like a teenager, young adult, and like really connect with a writer, and where their style, their, you know, kind of ethos really connects with you. There's something about it. And I remember tearing through the authors that I connected with at that point, their work, like couldn't wait to get my hands on another thing. And I, I don't know, I, I have profound experiences with books now, but I don't know if it's quite the same kind of intensity. Yeah. Kind of like music too. Like everything is like just a little bit more intense when you're. In conclusion, we're no longer young. <laughs> no. Um, oh my gosh, Miley Cyrus has that new song out. That's called <laughs> I Used to Be Young. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, is Miley Cyrus not young anymore? Oh. <laughs> that's hilarious. How old is Miley Cyrus? I don't know, 30. <laughs> She's looking back on her life. Um, wow. So who who's next month? Maggie Steve Otter. Maggie Steve Otter. Okay. All right. One of my favorites. That's right. I did not read her when I was young because we're like the same age. She wasn't hadn't written it yet. I mean, she was working on the Raven Boys when she was a teenager, but I think she had the skills to do it for a while. So. Yeah. yeah, I'm excited about that. I think Jacob is doing it with us, Colin. That's right. That's right. Have you read Maggie Steve Otter? It's on my list. You recommended mm. the Raven Raven Boys, right? Right. You recommended it. The audios are really good. Yeah. We listened to a, one on a, a road trip one time. Yeah, Will Patton reads Will them. Will Patton reads them. Fantastic. Really good. Does a lot of Stephen King, to too. Yeah. And hopefully patrons at home are following along and doing the challenge. I haven't checked in on it lately, but... You know, we're, we're getting toward the latter part of the year. It's not too late to do the challenge, get in there and get those prizes. But really, the most the greatest prize is, is the experience. It's the friends you make along the way. That's right. Do you guys have any, like, favorite lines from the readings or that you did? There was one in here where he talks about a sound like the unzipping the fly of God or something. <laughs> uh, and I thought that was great. It's silly, but it's one of those uh, frameable things that mm -hmm. I, I keep going to it, and it just cracks me up every time. And it's the funniest joke in the world. The last night I dreamed I was eating flannel cakes. When I woke up, the blanket was gone. <laughs> and I yeah, love it. Oh, the, the sentence is, the gun made a ripping sound like the opening of a zipper on the fly of God Almighty. He's really good at openings. Yeah, I had read this article in the New Yorker as well that was by Salman Rushdie, and it was like what Slaughterhouse-Five can teach us now, but it was written, I don't know, or published in like 2017 or something a few years ago. And it was interesting. I like those kind of like writers on, on writers, and he talks about the different times that he read the book and what you know, like you read a book at this period of your life and it means something to you then, and then you read it at a different time and you get like a totally different, you know, meaning out of it or a part that you thought was boring is actually now the most interesting part. Um, he talks about that in that in that article. It was really interesting. Did you have a line that you wanted oh, to? Oh, it's so hard. I don't have a line. I was thinking about this scene. I was like looking back um, 
player piano doesn't really have a snappy an opening as mm -hmm. some of them but it's like it opens the scene opens and they're at this ilium works which is like a plant and paul proteus is in charge and he's gotten this new cat and he's really into this cat just kind of this counterpoint to all the mechanized stuff and he goes out there's like a red light flashing on this bank of controls next to his secretary that says you know he needs to go check on something so he takes the cat out into this building and this building's full of all these auto lathes and machines and stuff and he's talking about like how all the different sounds of the machines make a kind of music but then something happens and the cat jumps out of his arms and gets scared of all these machines it's like running from one machine to another machine to another machine and then he's chasing after it like oh no and then it runs out and tries to jump over the fence and gets electrocuted at the top of the fence. It's just a real striking scene. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, it's and so like mechanism, it's just like the, the machine world and then this cat is sort of like, you know, this like creature thing and immediately he's like, oh, I love this cat so much. It's dead. In Slaughterhouse-Five, there's like- It's pretty gruesome. It's, yeah, there's some gruesome, <laughs> um, kind of scenes or descriptions of people who died in Dresden because there was like a lot of civilians mostly who died there um, interesting thing they think the estimate about for how many people died there is about 25,000 in his book he says 135,000 and he says it again in an essay in A Man Without a Country but that number is actually I'd read an overestimation made by somebody who was like a holocaust denier oh. as a way to like Try to equate. Yeah, yeah, or to say like the the Germans suffered more, or wow. were innocent in some way. Anyways, there were in some, any case the firebombing of Dresden was. Pretty it was pretty awful. terrible, and there's some pretty gruesome descriptions of what happened to people. <clears throat> then, but I feel like the worst description in the book is where he is talking to the guy who eventually has him killed because he is so into like vengeance and he talks about how this dog bit him one time and what he did to get back at the dog and it was I was like I read it really fast because I was like oh this is terrible like I couldn't like read it through it fast enough Heather do you remember I don't and I'm really mad at myself for not remembering he feeds the dog steak with like pieces of razor blades and wires in it yes and then watches him like die ugh he was an awful character, but... Yeah, the worst. Actually, until that part, I was like, everyone's picking on this character. And then I was like, oh, no, he's terrible. Get him. Yeah, that character's <laughs> no good. Awful. All right. <clears throat> Any final thoughts? Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, we'll catch you next month. This is your shelf. Or mine. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Austin. I'm Heather. Bye. 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 Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y, ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.
Yeah, Trophomador. 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 The Trophomador. The aliens. <laughs>